welcome to the Eric Andrews Lang Show. We've got a um, very special episode today. What what we're gonna do today is uh, we're gonna we're gonna pull back some old audio off of an interview that I did with Pete Dye, and this was oh man seven years ago maybe. This is before Adventures in Golf, before anything else. And you know, if you don't know Pete Dye, this guy is just his imprint on the game of golf is impressive, right? He, uh, um, a lot of the architects of today worked under him. Um, Jim Urbina, um, you know, and, and a lot took lessons from him, Doak and Hans and everybody. Um, and Dai really forged a way forward in a really creative way in golf course architecture. You know, TPC Sawgrass, obviously his most well-known creation, the origin of the 17th hole, he'll tell you in this podcast. Um, his wonderful wife, Alice, um, was a uh, was very accomplished golfer herself, and she definitely did a lot to um, further Dye's designs and obviously was a great support throughout his life as a, as a partner. And so this interview uh, came about because I was sitting in a hot tub in Florida, and I was telling someone that I was making a movie about golf and meditation, this is probably about eight years ago. This is before, you know, anything really. This is just me bumming around, sleeping in my car, grabbing a camera, and shooting golf. And, um, sorry, my phone's on. Um, and uh, so I'm sitting in this hot tub. I'm telling this guy, Brendan, and I'm like, hey, man, you know, I'm, I'm doing this golf meditation documentary. He says, oh, do you want to interview Pete Dye? And I was like, okay. You know, I, I mean, I knew who Pete Dye was, and I, you know, but I didn't know everything about it, and I wasn't nearly into golf course architecture the way I am now. You know, I find it so endlessly fascinating with the history and the current trends in the game and places like Sweeten's Cove or Streamsong, fascinating, old course. Obviously, you know that we talk a lot about architects here. It's the real game that we play. We're playing against the architect, playing against the course, the creation that they made, the decisions they made. And, uh, you know, Tom Doak says, and one of the times I interviewed him, he said, you know, Pete Dye... If he saw that people were aiming at a tree, he'd cut the tree down. <laughs> He's kind of a brutal architect. I don't know how many courses of his you've played, but there are some really incredible ones. And so this guy, Brendan, in the hot tub says, you know, I, I could get you an interview with Pete Dye. He, he, I work at French Lick, and he designed it over in Indiana. I ended up later going to French Lick. I mean, that course is impressive. It's a real max masterpiece out there, just in the middle of this, like, bluff in the middle of Indiana. And um, so he says, I can get you an interview with Pete Dye. Like, okay, so he gave me Pete Dye's house number. I called him. I said, hey, Pete, my name is Eric Lang. Brendan said we could do an interview and wondered when's good for you. He was like, oh, just about any time works for me, you know. He said, you know, I heard later from RTJ that golf course architects don't die. They just stop being able to get on flights. I thought that was funny. So later on in my life, right around the time that Pete Dye passed away, I was at Teeth of the Dog, one of his inspirations there, and he didn't know what he was going to call the course. Teeth of the Dog, a lot of people think that it's because it's the shape of the coastline there because it kind of edges out into the water, but that's not true. The name of the course is, comes from, you know, Pete Dye was down there, and um, they were they were doing some work on the water, and um, a lot of the workers there are all Dominican, so they're speaking Spanish. And this is a top 100 golf course. You know, it's an incredible, incredible property, beautiful course. And these workers are down there on the coastline moving around these rocks. 
And the rocks are kind of coral, you know, they're kind of sharp. And one of the Dominicans is yelling, Ah, diente del perro, diente del perro. And Pete looks at the, you know, his foreman, and he says, what are they saying? He says, oh, they're saying teeth of the dog, because that is, they, the, the rocks are cutting their hands. Pete says, teeth of the dog. That would make a good name for this golf course. I don't know if that's what he said, but that that's the origin of that course. And, you know, I mean, he he's always, you know, reinventing. And so, anyway, you'll you'll hear this interview with Pete. Wonderful story. Obviously, he passed away recently, and Alice passed away last year. And, um, you know, this is, this is recorded on a single camera. Some of the interview is on YouTube, if you want to watch some snippets of it and see what he looks like and see what, how he how he moves around, but you can tell he's a very, very intelligent guy, and his opinion means something. My audio is obviously, I wasn't at the time of my career where I recorded myself, right, because I was only making a movie about someone else. You know, I was pushed into the role of being the host in Adventures in Golf, and I didn't want to be, but that ended up happening. Um, so this is before all of that, so my audio is a bit not very good quality, and there's some moments in there where we're dealing with the camera and stuff. But you get the idea. Um, so please, without further ado, enjoy this interview with the legendary Pete Dye. Uncut, unfiltered. I love when he talks about how he loves golf course maintenance. And I also love when he talks about, you'll hear it, but he says, every Saturday doesn't come along every Saturday. So enjoy the interview. Thanks for listening to the Eric Anders Lang Show. And um, I don't know. We'll see how Pete ends this episode, but it's up to him now. All right. So you can just, I'll sit over here and you can, you can just have a conversation with me. Okay. Um, uh, well, thank you for having me. Good. <laughs> Basically, I started playing golf about two years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, before I started playing, I had this idea that golf was a... A, a very exclusive game for uh, people that weren't very much like me, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, and all of a sudden, I played. My brother invited me to play, and I had the best time ever. And I was immediately hooked. Mm -hmm. And then I found myself just continually being surprised at what I thought golf was and what golf actually turned out to be for me. And mm -hmm. um, so that's where this project came about: is that I'm a filmmaker, and um, I found golf to be a one of the most peaceful and serene experiences of my life, which was not what I thought it was going to be. So mm -hmm. that's my experience. Mm -hmm. um, what is your favorite feature of your golf courses? Well, <laughs> you started out so long, a long time ago when I was just five or six years of age. My dad was an ardent golfer, and he had built, the, uh, got a group of men together, and they uh, had a private club, but they built a nine-hole golf course in Urbana, Ohio, on my mother's family property. And uh, when I was born, 25, the time I was six or seven years of age, I'm out there watering the greens. The next thing I get a little older, I'm cutting the grass on the, uh, on the, on the greens, and I was working on the golf course. And every summer, I worked on the golf course. So I always I came very interested in golf course and the general maintenance of a golf course. And uh, 
And right before the war, World War II, the superintendent went to work in a defense plant, and I was 16 or 17, and I was made the greenkeeper at the Urbana Country Club. And I was there <clears throat> until 1944 when I went into the parachute infantry. But, uh, and then when I got out of, out of service, I've always been interested in, in, in the agronomics or maintenance of the golf course. And when I got married in 1950, I moved to Indianapolis where Alice is from. And I started to go take care of the, the country club of Indianapolis of the Greens chairman. And then I went to Purdue and took a lot of their short courses in, the, in agronomy. So I never passed any of them, but I, but I took them all. And I've always been interested in golf course maintenance. And that's been uh, uh, the real love of my whole life has been the maintenance of, of golf courses. So someplace along the line, uh, a farmer south of Indianapolis asked me if I would find somebody that would build him a golf course. So he didn't have any real money. And uh, I tried to find somebody and nobody wanted to take the job. So he asked Alice myself to go down there. And we went down and we built this nine hole golf course south of Indianapolis. And uh, we thought we'd build Oakmont, but uh, not quite. But uh, after we finished it, Alice made a nice map showing the golf course. And she sent it to all her friends and sent one to Richard Tufts. And Mr. Tufts owned Pinehurst or was a big owner of Pinehurst. And he was past president of the uh, United States Golf Association. So he wrote back and said it was wonderful for us kids to build this nine-hole course. But he said, uh, don't you think crossing the creek 13 times in a nine-hole course is just a little too much? Well, anyhow, the following fall, uh, the president of the University of uh, Michigan, Dr. Harlan Hatcher, was driving from Ann Arbor down through Indianapolis and he stopped and played that nine-hole golf course. And he's about a 90 shooter. I got to know Dr. Hatcher. But how he must have had the greatest round of golf ever played to get over the creek 13 times. So anyhow, he had been talking to Trent Jones and Dick Wilson about building the new University of Michigan course. At that time, I was still in the life insurance business. I was peddling life insurance for the Connecticut Mutual. And I was the, one of the youngest members of the Million Dollar Roundtable. So I was very interested in insurance. And he called me, Dr. Hatcher called, and tell, he said he wanted to talk to me about building a course for the University of Michigan. And I told him I was in the insurance business, didn't know how to draw plans, and didn't know anything about that nature. He said, well, come up. So I went up there and talked to Dr. Hatcher. And long story short, he and I ended up building the University of Michigan golf course at Roderick Farms. That was 1968. 66 or 68, someplace in that area. And I came back and thought about it, and Alice and I talked it over, and uh, I gave up the insurance business and been digging dirt ever since. So <laughs> it's a, I have no real love for any one particular golf course, but I have a love for the maintenance of golf courses. I always have been interested in, in that phase of it, and I still have a, uh, an interest in different courses where I'm where I've built, I go back and work on the maintenance of the golf courses. So that's been my life. And I, I haven't really enjoyed it. I've never worked a day in my life because I, I enjoy what I do. And uh, I, I have, I'm still working now <clears throat> down in the Dominican Republic where uh, there, there's, I got five golf courses down there. 
And then I work at quite a bit up at Jacksonville where the tournament players is. And I work at Harbortown and, and they have and they have a new sponsor, so they're in good shape. And now I've been working up the ocean course, getting ready for the PGA Championship, and it'll be uh, um, uh, next year or this year. Yeah, this summer. year, this summer. 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 Right. That's a long. I'm just getting too fast. What do you think about maintenance is most interesting to you? Well, the maintenance has changed like everything else in this world. You're a young man. And everything changes. You see it change, but it's escalated so. And uh, we keep, we keep the golf courses so manic manicured nowadays as the cost has gone up. And I don't really like that too much, but I don't run the world. But the uh, like you go with a lot of the courses in Ireland, England, Scotland. They, they their maintenance is nothing like like what we do in our country, and we've escalated it. A lot of it has come from where the uh, the builders are building homes, and they built homes. So now the lady lives here, and then on the other side of the fairway, another lady, and they they want everything manicured from one side to the other. It's escalated the cost, and then they they've changed the method, and the greens used to be cut at a, at a at a rate called a step meter. You know, what I'm talking about the rate of the, the, the speed of the golf ball. And it used to be seven or eight, and now it's up to twelve, and that all escalates the cost of maintenance. And I hate to see that because I think that hurts golf. And I think someday it, it'll come back with a little recession or a little this. It'll, people will start to realize that they can go back to seven or eight or nine on the step meter, and and they can cut the fairways a little higher. They can do this and do that, and they don't have to have the the rough just immaculate. And um, so that'll bring the cost back, the maintenance cost. And I think the, the uh, escalated cost of maintenance has hurt the game of golf, but, but it seems to be surviving. But someday I think that feeling that, that, and especially now that you have much more of a world golf going on. I mean, you turn on the television, they're playing in Abu Dhabi, and then they're playing in, in some place in Sweden, and then next play they're playing in, in the British Isles, and they're playing in Africa. So I think the the way they maintain those car, golf courses will start to filter back to the United States, and that'll help out as far as the cost is concerned. Do you, how much do you think a round of golf should cost? Well, you know, the, uh, I built a golf course in northern Indiana for under a million dollars, and I built one in southern Indiana for $20 million. So there's a tremendous difference of, of the cost of building a golf course. I mean, tremendous difference. And then a lot of people are building a golf course is either for a resort or they're building it for a, a have a major championship. And then they're building a, a nice golf course for uh, for a guy can pay $35 to pay, play golf. And uh, it's, it's a complete difference. But then I think that the uh, the uh, Escalation in some of the res high-end resorts and high-end golf courses, they don't have to be that much to make a good golf course. And then you have fescue rough and a little of this and a little less water and a little less this and a little less that. But uh, but the golf, the, the game would be the same. And it was that way for many, many years. And I think it'll filter back to that, at least I hope so, in a lot of places where 
then then will bring it the play from two hundred dollars down to a hundred and and then from fifty down to thirty five so the whole world can play golf and I mean if it gets if if the cost escalates so that then the fellow that working in the factory or the fellow working in the drugstore or where he is can't afford to play it then it's bad but uh, i I think it'll come back to where they can play what had happened I think Everything happens in change in the United States. It's when they built so many houses, and they built houses around or with a golf course, and that that escalated it. And I think that'll slowly come back. At least I hope so. <laughs> I agree. So many, I want, this is great. I mean, you're talking about so many things that I'm interested in. It's, it's really amazing. I just want to change uh, my lens really quick. Have you heard of the villages? The villages? No, I don't know. It's uh, outside of Ocala. And it's oh, yes. Like I know. I've heard of it. Yeah. I've never been there. 700 golf holes. Uh, they're really up there. Uh, 100,000 people. And the interesting thing about that to me is that, I don't know. I mean, they're basically using golf as a real estate embellishment. Mm-hmm. Do you see that a lot? Well, yes. I I haven't built... See, like a lot of my friends build 20 golf courses a year or design them. I do... I, I, I usually build it. So I'm lucky to get one done a year. And I haven't done too many for uh, what they call a housing development. And most times I've been done with a housing development. I've had the owner say, all right, all the houses participate in paying for some of the maintenance of the golf course because you have 500 homes around a golf course uh, maybe only two or three hundred other people want to play golf the other 200 or 250 don't but you but but the uh, their property is escalated because they're living in or close to around a golf course so everybody ought to has to contribute for the maintenance of the golf course and this is what has hurt some of the uh, developments where they haven't done that and then when they get done, they they sold all 500 units, and only 250 people out of 500 or 200 people live there and want to play golf. So then the 200 can't maintain the golf course. So somehow or another, when the developer goes in there, he has to kind of tell the guy, all right, you're going to pay a little bit every year because you're in, in a community that's guarded or it's around the golf course or something. And that way they, they can... S- Sustain the maintenance of, of the golf course, but uh, everything everything you know changes about uh, the game, and, and none of the housing development is is it, they are the ones that are kind of in trouble today. It's not like the golf course down here, Gulfstream. Uh, they still got a full membership. It has nothing to do with houses. And uh, Delray Dunes out there is everybody out there. That lives at Delray Dunes, so they all pay into the into the the deal, so they're doing fine, and they're, and that's fine. But a lot of things have changed, like not only the housing developments, but then the golf equipment has changed. And uh, it used to be when Jack Nicklaus hit a, a drive 265 yards, that was a mile, you know, that was a whole mile, and then the lady hit the ball 130 or 40, 50 yards. So there was a hundred yards difference, so 125. Now she still hits at 100, 
35, 40 yards, and Tiger or somebody else is hitting at 310 or three, the, the separation. And, and that, that has escalated the cost because now when you're, uh, a person wants you to build a golf course, they want to have the national opener, national amateur, or the PGA Tour. you got to go way back here to get the tee and another tee and another tee and so forth. And escalated the uh, the cost because of the equipment, and I think someday they the, the uh, used to the USGA and their RNA in in Britain they've always wanted to have the same rules for the lady player, the amateur player, or the you, you as a player as the, the Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson or or whoever Stricker whoever is out there they they all have the same rules. Well, they now they those pros, young men are hitting us so far, they've changed, they, they've changed the the game dramatically between Jack hitting at 260 yards and the lady hitting 140. Now the lady hits at 140, the pros are hitting at 300 and some odd yards. A lot of them are, just not one of them, a lot. And then what has also happened <clears throat> a lot in golf is that if I owned a daily fee golf course and I used to say, all right, tee off foursome now and eight minutes later I'd put another foursome. Now I have to say the guy might come out of the, out of the steel mill or come out of the grocery store or something, this kid, and he can hit it just as far as Tiger or the next guy. So now I got to wait because I don't know when he's going to show up on the tee and I got to wait now everybody's cleared 300 and some yards before I can tee off the next foursome. So that has reduced the number of people that can play on my daily fee golf course, which is costly. So here's the guy, he's, he's selling some Tylus and he's selling some Callaway and he's selling golf. It's killing him because he has to wait till he gets us 310, 15, 20 yards. And then if he has a par four, that's just 300 yards. He's got to wait till they get off the green, and and so he's responsible as a daily fee person. So that's that hasn't helped the game of golf. So someday, uh, the, the maintenance will get kind of back down a little bit, and then I think someday that you'll find the, the RNA and, and the USEL finally get together and say, all right, we got to have a different set of rules for for the professional player, and then they'll have to create a golf ball or have the manufacturers create a golf ball. So Mary Smith ball will go instead of 140, she goes 145 or 50 yards. And uh, these great pros, instead of going 310, they'll be back to 250 or 60. Bring it down. They can't do it with the same equipment. And then, so I don't think the game has suffered dramatically from that, but it, you can't just keep letting it spread and spread and spread till there's no end to it. So someplace along the line, uh, somebody in the USGA and somebody in the RNA and the PGA Tour and the PGA of America, they'll finally get together and realize that they gotta build a golf ball that'll go farther for the lady that hits at 130 or 40 yards and not as far for Tiger. So, so therefore, it'll be two separate set of rules, which is what they've fought all these years. But someday they're just gonna, it's gotten spread it so that they're gonna have to bring it back together some way or another. I don't know how they'll do that, 
<clears throat> but uh, that'll that'll reduce the cost. And then then when you're building a golf course, I'm up here working at the Ocean Course at, at Kiowa, where they're going to have the PGA Championship in August. And uh, and uh, I built some areas to build the tees, expand them, make it a little longer. Back in 1991. And I thought I'd never live to see the day that they'd ever want to use those back tees. But they're going to go back to all of them for the PGA Championship. That's going to be played there <clears throat> this year. So here, in 91 to 201, that's 20 years. Bingo. The tees I put back, I thought nobody would ever use. Here they're going to use them. So, but that's cost. That's cost. And uh, I hate to see that, but... It, I've been up, I've been working up there. I've been with the PGA of America at the Ocean Course, and, and I finally got the road to the south end so the ambulance could get out there, and you got all these things to do for a PGA Championship. But also, they're gonna use all the back tees. <laughs> there you go. Interesting, I mean, yeah, equipment is changing a lot. Um, I think, can I check your mic one sec? All right, everybody. Every minute, the equivalent of one dump truck of plastic enters our oceans. That's, that's 60 dump trucks a minute. Okay. That's 12, that's, that's 1,200. What, 1,320? That doesn't sound right. Thousands of dump trucks every day. Plastic enters the oceans. This plastic doesn't just, I'm going to get my glasses on, affect marine life. It affects, it ends up in our food as microplastics. Plastic is a problem. That's why Adidas is aiming to end plastic waste by 2024. Wow. That's, a, that's incredible. You mean within their own company, not within the world. 100% of Adidas products. Yeah, okay. Here. Problem solved. 100% of Adidas products will be made by recycled polyester by 2024. That's rad because I use a water bottle, folks. I know that Adidas doesn't make it, but it's not. Plastic water bottles are just, they're bad. I mean, you, sometimes you got to do it, but they're bad. Adidas Golf is doing their part this week by introducing the limited edition Prime Blue Code Chaos footwear for both men and women, made in part with parlor. Excuse me. I just had some pretzels. And ginger beer. Okay, in part with Parley Ocean Plastic. This recycled yarns, the recycled yarns in the footwear are made from plastic that was collected from beaches and coastal communities, preventing it from entering our oceans. From problem to performance, pick up your pair now at adidas.com. For more info about the latest products from Adidas Golf, go to adidas.com and throw Adidas Golf and follow on Instagram and Twitter. All right, I'm going to catch me now. We got Bido. Let, give me a second, all right? I'm about to do an ad read for Vice Golf. I don't even have a read, so this is a this is an ad lib. This is an ad libbed lib read. Anyway, Vice Golf, you all know I love the brand. Uh, they make a great golf ball, and there are things that I would tell you in person about the golf ball that I can't tell you in a public forum. But basically, the golf ball is amazing. Technically speaking, on test, it performs as good or better than what we call, quote, the best golf ball on tour. Now, the Vice Golf Ball also has one cool thing, which is that it's cool. Obviously, the scripting is really sweet. But beyond that, it has another cool thing. I'm going to keep pulling cool things out of this ball. The second cool thing is that you can't get it in a pro shop. So go online, go to vicegolf.com, 
and get your slick balls. They've got all different types. They've got the Tour. They've got the Drive. They've got the Pro. They've got the Pro Plus. They've got different colors. And you can also personalize less than uh, – you can personalize. I don't know what number you can personalize, but you can personalize them, whereas other brands don't let you personalize them except for once a year. So check out vicegolf.com. Get yourself some smooth and cool balls for the course, that is. Anyway, y'all, see you in the showers until the next ad read. Precision Pro, folks. I'm going to do an ad-libbed Precision Pro read. Here's the thing about Precision Pro. They're made by some great guys in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's got great design. And coming out soon, you're going to get a very special colorway of the NX9 Pro with slope. Is that right? That's it. I got, I got a thumbs up in the studio here that that's the exact rangefinder. Not only do you get free battery replacement for life, but you get slope and you get laser. I mean, it is a laser, laser sharp accuracy. And you get, I don't know, you just get to be part of something cool that I'm down with. So Precision Pro is great. Obviously, the family there in Cincinnati makes some good. We did an RGC there. If you haven't seen it, check out the video on the YouTube channel. We gave everybody a rangefinder. But stay tuned. Coming around April, we're going to be releasing a random golf club version of this rangefinder. It is the most beautiful rangefinder I've ever seen on planet Earth. And I, as you know, I haven't traveled any other planets yet. I've done a lot of countries and states and towns, continents, hemispheres. But I've never left the planet. And I was just talking to someone who said that that's on their bucket list. It's not on mine. I don't share that. But on this planet, the random golf club rangefinder will literally blow your mind, but it won't blow your wallet. The rangefinder for everyone, people. Enjoy it. All right, one more ad read. I'll probably do another one after this. Jones Sports Go, folks. If you want the bag that I rock, it's the Jones Sports Bag. They got the Player Series. They got the original. What are the other? What's the other models they got? The stand bags? We're pulling it up in the studio, folks. But here's the thing. Jones, if you haven't seen the video on YouTube yet, please check it out. We went up there, visited with them. We designed a lot of cool stuff. We're going to be designing more stuff. We have two bags on the Random Golf Club site that have the Random Golf Club script on it. The Utility Trooper is the is the is the info I'm getting of the name of the other bag that I like. It's got the stand. It's got the stand bag. I also I I mostly rock the original, which is based on a design from the 70s. Uh, was his name Jones? His name was Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones and me. Now that guy got in a lot of trouble for some. What's that? Taxi cabs. But the but the guy who sang the song, Mr. Jones, he's no he's gotten a lot of trouble. Don't want to talk about him. But Mr. Jones, not that the song is written about, was a taxi driver in New York. He made a golf bag out of the upholstery in his taxi. And that's where Jones has come from. So they're obviously the comfortable shoulder strap on the original series is what I love. Got a lot of cargo space and you got three pockets to hold all your clubs. And you look basically like a badass. You're 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 if you're if you don't have a if you don't have a significant other at, at the start of the round, you will have one at the end. Am I right? Watch out! It's, it's you know that's the studio here says, get a Jones bag. I'm not going to say get laid, but basically that's what's going to happen. I mean, I, I didn't say it. You said it. You heard it. I didn't say it. Jones Sports Go, everybody, love them. Tailor made, folks. I got to tell you, the first golf clubs that ever went in my little old hands were tailor made burner oversize. They had some crusty old grips that I redid myself at risk of my own fingertips with the razor, and I and I got high because I don't know if you've ever re-gripped your clubs, but you 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 become an, an inhalant addict because you're putting, like, really noxious stuff. Don't, don't grip your own clubs unless you really want to. Anyway, mad respect. Give me a fist bump whenever I see you. I grip my own clubs. I put the grips on them myself. I see. 
How much did you save? I mean, you could save money. You save money because I think you put them on. It's like twenty bucks each, and you and you buy the grips yourself. It's like eight bucks. By the way, regripping fourteen clubs. I mean, you, that's like a lot. Go buy TaylorMade's instead. They come with grips. My favorite TaylorMade edition now, obviously the Sim Max I'm playing, is a monster club. One of the many things Tiger Woods have and I in common is playing the Sim. But also, I really, I kind of love the wedges. The raw-faced wedges, MG. I both love the high toe in matte black. I also have a matte black shaft. I know you didn't ask, but I went ahead and told you. Anyway, TaylorMade, my favorite thing about TaylorMade, beyond the incredibly performing equipment, is the people that make this company up. The, the, band, of, the band of brothers down here, the band of sisters, the family in Carlsbad, really, really gets behind what we do, and that means it's important for you to get behind what they do. So go support TaylorMade, everybody, and hit them straight, or just don't, just, just hit them with TaylorMades, though. Just get some, just stop messing around with all the others. Hit them straight with TaylorMade, but just hit TaylorMade at least. I mean, if you're not, I mean, just, just go, I mean, what are you doing? Just pause the pod, go on TaylorMade, what's their website? I don't even, they don't even need a website. Just go find TaylorMade ASAP. There should be, what? What I play? I play the, okay, Studio is asking me to play, P, I pay the P760s, four through pitch, then I've got the milled grind raw face, 50, 54, and 58, and then I rock. I'm in between the Gapper and the Sim Hybrid right now. I play the two Gapper. Uh, I've got a steel shaft of the 6.5 Project X in that one, as with all the irons. And then on the driver, I have the uh, Sim Max with a 9 degree. I'm still working on getting my numbers on that. I don't really know. I got the 10.5 and, and the 9. We're going to do a little experimentation. Maybe, honestly, you know what? Whatever one I don't use, how about it's yours? How about that? We're gonna. I don't know how we're going to manage this. Head over to the Instagram account. Get ready for the old giveaway of the driver that I can't hit. <laughs> anyway, TaylorMade's the family, folks. Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason. And we have a couple of podcasts. If you, you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy. And we have a podcast called Dumb People Town, where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. So we've been you okay. Yeah. So we've been talking about all the things that um, have changed since golf began, mm -hmm. but what is the one thing that hasn't changed since people started playing golf? You know, what what just seems to uh, stay the same over time? Well, uh, golf is a great game. <clears throat> just a wonderful game. <clears throat> I'm, I'm half 172 right now, 86, and I can play 18 holes and still play pretty good, and and I've been playing since I was three or four or five years of age. So my Lord, I've been playing over 80 years. So, and then I can compete. I played with today with a, a young lady that won the uh, British Amateur and the American Amateur. She still plays quite well. And so you, you can play with Greg Norman and you can play with your wife. It's a tremendous game that you can, it's such a spread of, of, of a relationship that you can play with, with people with different abilities and even these golf professionals that you read about and you see on the television they're out there playing in a pro-am with fellows that can't break 90 so it's it's a great mixture and then the game itself i mean one day steve sticker wakes up and he shoots 63 and the next day he has a hard time holding on to the club it's it's such a changing 
uh, way, the way you play golf. And there's and there's a lot of great players out there that they just go up and down and around, and their game comes and goes, and you can't tell why. And it's, it's so many variations. And the balls, uh, like a baseball is coming across there mile a minute, and football, they're throwing it as hard as you can. You get hit, the ball is just sitting there. All you have to do is hit it. From, it doesn't even move. It's sitting right on the ground. All you have to do is hit it. And yet, one day, you can just hit, hit it, and everything's going so great. And the next day, you come out, and you don't think you've ever played before. And, and, and that's true not only with a, the great professionals, it's true with all golfers. I mean, a lady can go out and shoot 120 one day, and, and the next day she shoots 98. And it's a great day. And, and, and all of a sudden can't break 125 the next day. So it's a very a variation. And a, a pro like Street Sticker the other day had 63, and he was struggling until the last three or four holes yesterday, and he birdied the last three holes to get 69. It looked, looked like he never played before uh, until the last three holes yesterday. So the day before, he's 63, and the next day, he's just struggling, 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 and he held on together, and, he's, and he, got, he had three great holes to finish. But that's the way golf is. And, and, and you wake up, and uh, the guy that works all the time, he wakes up Saturday morning, he goes out, and, he goes out on the driving range and hits it just dead perfect and gets on the golf course and he's just a mess. And the next week he goes out and he hits on the driving range, can't hit it at all, and he plays a great round of golf. So it's such a variation. And, and it's somehow or another it gets into a person's mind that he can do something all the time. You always think you can do your best. You always think that. You go out there and you think, well, I... Shot 84 the other day, I ought to be in 82 or 3 or 4 today. And then you come up with a 97. And the next day you think, well, uh, I, I'm terrible, then you shoot 80, 80. So you never know what's going to happen in the game of golf. And as hard as you try, you, you can never predict it. You can never predict who's going to come out. And just like uh, Roy McIlroy just won in the, uh, the U.S. Open by that many shots, you just can't predict that. And, and and then the next two or three tournaments he can't he doesn't finish as near as well, but uh, it's it's that's the way the game goes and it goes not only for the the guy that shoots 110 or 115 it goes for the the professional golfer and it's for everybody between the 115 and 70 shooter they it's it's that's that's the game and it's it's a it's a it's it's an individual where. Uh, you're doing it all by yourself and nobody else. There's no team. There's no football field. There's no baseball team. It's not a basketball. It's, it's soccer or whatever it is. It's yourself. And, uh, and you have such a variation of what you can do and you can't do. And then another thing about golf that's probably as much to do it, it's, it's the, even the daily fee golf course in the middle of a city or even the private club out in the woods, but it's still the atmosphere, the ambience of that area has something to do with a game. I, I mean, I, I like, I, I've played golf all my life, and I've been fortunate enough. My wife has won everything. She's won everything. But I was Larson, and I won a couple state amateurs, and, and I played in the U.S. Open, and I played in the national amateur. But today, I enjoy it because 
I get to walk 18 holes. I mean, I, mean, I can't play near as good as I used to, but I, I still enjoy it. And, and, uh, and I like the idea of just being out there, just to go play. And somebody will always ask me which course I think is my best. Well, it's one I had the, my best round of golf recently would be the one. But uh, and that's the way you feel about the game of golf. If you go out and play a good round of golf on someplace, whether it's your course or one you worked on or anything, but it's, it's the way you feel when you finish. My gosh, I've really done something today. And uh, in, in, a, in the way golf is, it doesn't happen every day. It doesn't, a good round doesn't show up every day. It just comes when you least expect it. And, uh, <laughs> and so, therefore, but that's part of it. And, and that's the atmosphere that people think. They think, well, I played last Saturday. I didn't play worth a nickel. I'm terrible. But I'm going to go back next Saturday, and I'm going to play good. They just keep thinking you're going to play good. And then you don't play good that Saturday, but the following Saturday you do. So now you're back on the same track. You're going to do it every Saturday. But every Saturday doesn't show up every Saturday. It doesn't show up. But eventually you'll get back to doing it again. And that's why golf is so great. And it's, and it's the amazing thing is so great that you can play with people with different calibers and with a stroke they have or whatever you work it out. And if people are ardent golfers, they need to know they're a 90 shooter or 95 and you're 75 or 80 or whatever it is, if you have the strokes worked out, you can have fun playing golf. And that's, that's hard to do in any other sport. Yeah, I think that is one of the best things about it. Um, do you think golf is a spiritual game? Oh, I never thought of it being a spiritual game, but it surely has every atmosphere that's connected to spiritual game. The atmosphere, the, the, uh, you take, I've never met a bad person in golf. <laughs> and uh, and the, uh, the, you read about it in the television, you see where the kids in first tee talk about the honesty and this, the game. And uh, most of the people, 99% are that way out there. They keep their own score. They don't, don't eliminate or do something wrong. They intentionally. A lot of people make mistakes unintentionally out there, but but not intentionally, and they uh, so it's it has a great atmosphere, and 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 so many golf courses in our country um, have an atmosphere to it that that is you could say is has something to do with Christianity or religion or something or the man upstairs, but. Uh, that has a great deal, but you take a, a football field, a football field, a baseball field, a baseball field, and a soccer field, a soccer field, and all those things. But <clears throat> you go out and, and play some of the, the different golf courses that are along the edge of the ocean. Pebble Beach is absolutely a marvelous place. And then you go play at Pinehurst and the Sand Hills. It's a marvelous place. And Black Page right down in New York, it's, it's got an atmosphere to it. So they really have uh, an atmosphere that the ambience of a lot of golf courses is, is, is unbelievable. And, and, the, and, and the, uh, the, the, actually, uh, the, it's the, a lot of golf courses are next to our railroad track or they might be high, but generally they're 
a quiet something about a golf course. Some place out the golf course, you can't have every hole on a railroad track. You, <clears throat> you got to have something interior. And uh, the different golf courses, you know, that's such a thing, great thing about it. They all have 18 holes or nine holes, but 18 holes of golf. And and the the ambience of the of the different golf courses from some place in New Mexico to California to Maine, uh, Long Island, they're all so different, yet they're similar. All different, yet similar. They all have 18 holes. Most of them have 18 holes. Most of them are par 71 or two, and, and they all have a similarity. And uh, and uh, some are just immaculate condition and some are not. Some are even that are not in as good condition or, or even for the way somebody looks at it are more fun to play. So you get a, such a variety. But it's always the same feeling about a golf course. I mean, a lot, a lot of people play a golf course that's in very modest or poor condition, but somehow or another they come out of it and they enjoy it. People, you know, they really enjoy golf, and, and it, 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 it's such an extended period of time. My bride, I've been married 62 years now, but she won the, uh, the Indianapolis City Tournament, I think, eight or nine times, or maybe more, years and years ago, 67 years ago. And they had the tournament this year at Crooked Stick. And they called and said, oh, Alice, you want to? Oh, no, I'm too old. Okay. Well, anyhow, I came home one night, and I said, where's Mrs. Dye? And the lady said, well, she's practicing. So I came, came in, what are you going to do? She said, well, I might play, she said. So anyhow, she went out. And now Alice is, I can't remember, 83 or 4 or something. <laughs> but she won the tournament 67 years ago. She goes out and plays. And this is the Indianapolis. Indianapolis is over a million people. And it's the Indianapolis district. They have all the girls play, and they have a lot of young Kids right out of high school and college playing in the city tournament or the district tournament, they call it. And she qualified for the championship flight. Now, I mean, how can in the world can you have a sport that you've played for 70 years and still be competitive and still be part of it and you enjoy it? And I mean, something about golf, and there's a lot of people. Uh, that, that have played golf down at where we play now that have been playing golf for 50 and 60 years. It's, you can't do that in, too, in very many other sports. I mean, if you're uh, a tennis player, you have to find somebody that you're in your stage or your caliber to play. But golf, Alice goes down there and she's still playing with some girls, that are young girls that are 17 or 18 or 19, they're hitting that ball out of sight and still playing competitive golf with them. She just gets enough strokes and you, you can play and have fun and enjoy playing it and, and, and try like the devil to, to, to come out on the top at the end of the day. But uh, how often can you find a sport that's like that? I don't think there's any other sport. Um, the, the, what some would call the most famous golf hole in the world, um, sounds like it was kind of serendipitous the way it was defined uh, in when you were building it. Can you tell me that story? Well, the one in Jacksonville. 
the Allegory. <clears throat> well, it all comes back to my, my bride of some 62 years. And Alice has played great golf all, all her life. She's, she's won the North-South Amateur, and she won the Eastern Amateur, and she's won the State, and she won the Florida State Amateur and the Indiana State Amateur 11, 12 times. But anyhow, in a par three, you always know where the, where the tees are going to be. The tee is there for a par three. So if you're on the back tee, that's, you're a good player, you're playing here. And you're a modest player in the middle of the tee. And if you have a lady, ladies are playing, you got to have a ladies tee. So you know where they're coming from. So Alice, is, every time I work on a golf course, uh, we, we talk about it. And she comes out and says, well, where is Mary Smith going to play this hole? Where is she going to, how is she going to play this hole? It's always Mary Smith or some lady 90 years old or 80 years old or 70 or 60 or 5 or whatever it is, whatever age, but anyhow. But and then she always feels that the par threes ought to be the strongest because she knows she can get the ladies tee in a certain position that they have a fighting chance to play that hole. So uh, we were down in Jacksonville, and, uh, and it was a low area. Well, you're going to see Dean. I don't want to call it a swamp, but anyhow, it was it was a swamp, and we got, and and it didn't have much sand. And I was looking for sand every place I went out there. And finally, we we're over there where the 17th hole, par three, was going. We started digging, and then we hit sand. So I kept digging and digging and digging and digging. And finally, instead of having a golf hole, I just had a hole in the ground about 30, 40 feet deep, where I'd taken out all the sand. So I got to build a golf hole. I don't have one. And Alice came out there. And she looked at it and she said, "What are you going to do here?" And I said, "I don't know. I got to go get some junk dirt, put back in here, and fill this thing up." She said, "Well, why don't you just build an island green and make it a real short par four, a par three?" And I said, "Well, what do you mean, just an island green?" Well, I said, "You can just go out there and bulkhead and." And bring the uh, bad dirt up to ground level, then build a green on top of it. And I said, "Well, that's crazy." So more I got to thinking about it, and then I came back and and financially it was the least expensive thing to do to start with. So the the uh, the uh, from the back tee from the pros tee it's only 135 yards. So they're hitting a, a wedge or a nine iron, or eight iron, the most, and then off the side. The green was just oblong. I put the ladies' teeth. They only had about, oh, maybe 200 feet, 60, 70 yards to carry to get the green. So that's where she wanted the tee, so I did. And, and so all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this, this, this green has gotten all this variety. And the amazing thing about it, one of the really amazing, amazing things about it, the club professional was there he could go out there and put 100 golf balls down and hit 100 golf balls onto that green. Now, when they had the tournament, and here the tournament is, and those guys got out there, and they would take a 9-iron, and the green is 5,000 square feet in diameter. It's plenty, it's plenty big. It's not just a poachy stand. And they would stand out there with a 9-iron or a wedge and miss that green. I couldn't understand it. I really... Had no wild idea. I thought I thought everybody would hit that green, and they put swings on it like you've never seen those people swing. 
on that particular hole. And so then the next thing we did, uh, I did it at the ocean course at Kiowa when they had the Ryder Cup, and the uh, 17th hole, and uh, I thought I had a hard hole, and Alice came out and said, you, it's not near hard enough. Now this is a lady talking about a par three, but she could move that lady's tee where 17 was playable. And of course, during the Ryder Cup, those guys hyperventilated, they did everything you could think on that par three. And the same thing they've done up at Kohler on the 17th hole uh, on the par three up there. But you can put the ladies tee in a position they can finally negotiate <coughs> that golf hole. And so I've always tried to get the golf hole to finish either five, three, four, or four, three, five, or something to get as much variation. And the Tournament Players Club in Jacksonville, it, it ends up uh, five, three, four, and Kohler is five, three, four, and, and the Ocean Course is, is it's five, three, four, too. I don't know how, <laughs> just, just that way, but, but uh, it just, and, and it's just part of the game. It's just to get as much variation in three holes as you can. If you have a five and a three and a four, that helps you, and then so forth. But Alice has always said to me many, many times, par threes, you can do what you want because I can get a tee somehow or another that those girls can play it. And uh, so uh, the par threes that we built at Harbortown, I think they're, they're it's most interesting that I've ever seen. And it's in a low area, it's a low country. The par threes at, uh, at Harbortown are pretty good. And the ones that, that uh, Term Players Club in Jacksonville, they, they're all got a they all talk about them. They're, they're, none of them are easily hold, easy holes, but the ladies can play them. That's all you have to worry about. <laughs> and that let the pros get a little bit upset <laughs> and everybody else. But you know what? Then the notoriety of that hole goes up because of that. And uh, so that's, that's how it happened. But Alice is the one that, I mean, it's, I built them dug it out in the swamp, stood out there and got bit and everything by mosquitoes and snakes and everything else. But she, is, she wanted that hole like it is today. That's the 17th of TPC. I like that story. Um, let me ask you, how do you, uh, so how do you deal with criticism? Well, you know, in golf, if you have a committee of 10 people, you have 10 different opinions real quick. Uh, no question about it. You, if you had 10 golf professionals, you'd have 10 different opinions. You have 10 on the ladies, you'll have 10 different opinions. You have 10 men, they're just on the Greens Committee. You're going to have 10 different opinions. And, and in my business, you just, you just have to accept that. And uh, if you do a great job and build the greatest golf course in the world, nine out of those ten will want to kill you. See, so you're just, you're ready. You've you got to accept that. And, and so, uh, and, and I understand that, where they're all coming from, different. Some want the greens fast, slow. Some want, want are great putters. They want more undulation. Some want more, the green more receptive, some less receptive. 
everything you can possibly think. And in, in, in the game of golf, in the, in the golf courses from, from all over Ireland and Scotland and England and the United States and all over the world, they're all different. And you get tremendous variations in the golf course. And um, so when you build a golf course, you, you just pray that, that it's going to be accepted by the majority. And, um, and, and there, therefore, it's really difficult to do that a lot of times when, you're, when the owners have you build one for the Ryder Cup or the PGA Championship or the U.S. Open Championship or some other major championship where you know those guys hitting at 300 yards are going going at you. And, and you know the owner's going to have a heart attack and die if they shoot a real, real low score. So you have to make the golf course playable for the, those great players. And you got to remember, Alice is going to tell you, how is Mary Smith going to get around this golf course? So you got you got a challenge there. So the, so you, you, and you know that Mary Smith is going to say, well, there's too many weeds in the rough. And, and the good golf pro doesn't see the weeds in the rough. He, they look at the golf course entirely different. Everybody looks at it according to their game and, and not, not necessarily as an overall thing. <clears throat> Some guys are really great putters. and brother have the green so fast you can't even walk on them, and the others don't. And they could be a, of the same caliber of, of player. But the ladies or the men, so you're going to get a difference. So when you build a golf course, and then you're at the, the mercy of the man upstairs, how the condition of the golf course is when you go back, when you go back and see it. And, it, and golf courses are living things. They change. And, 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 and the game has changed, like we've talked about, the clubs, the ball, and this. So you have to go back and, and modify and, and work with it according to the, the new changes in the game, if, especially if, if they're going to have a major championship at your golf course. I've been pretty lucky. Uh, I've had eight majors come there, and, and uh, you don't. I know you don't have them thought about, it, but how to get the ambulance from one end of the golf course to the other—that's <laughs> a major thing in a major championship. And you gotta gotta have it. You gotta get that ambulance in and out of there somehow or another. And then the next thing you don't know, they get 200 carts out during the championship, and you don't want them stuck all over the place. So it's it's a it's a multitude. Now you not only got the people watching, you not only got the people playing, you not only got the professional people playing. You got you got the, the television people yelling at you. You got the, the medics talking to you like this. Then you got thirty-three thousand people. You're trying to figure out how to get them parked and get them through security. It's a three-dollar bill, and and you always make mistakes. I I tell you that. I'm working up at Kohler right now, trying to figure out how to get the Kohler, the get it as a as a uh, an ambience there for the for the people to watch, to make it a stadium type golf course without tearing up all the mounds and doing all this and all that. You don't want to do that. Change that because here's Mr. Kohler. He loves the things that looks like Ireland or Scotland or whatever it is, and he. Which then you got a mound here that blocks the view here, and a mound here. It's three dollar bill to kind of work it around to, to get a, a stadium effect. Now, actually, the one in Jacksonville, 
when I started out there, I had the, the mountains all junked up, and we've slowly brought them back to, and 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 they're all in the same place, but I've slowed them down. And now I know that if it's on a three-to-one slope, people can buy a seat and go out there and sit down on it. So it's all changes. Everything changes. And then all of a sudden, the the, uh, the uh, sky boxes, they used to be so wide. Now they're 38 feet wide. Now they want to, the flatter you get the top, where you get 38 feet, <clears throat> that eliminates the putting balance or st st stances underneath it. So it reduces the insurance costs and all these things. And then another thing is, uh, down there, you can put them up faster and take them down faster because you don't want them, people out there working for three weeks or a month after the tournament's over or a month of bore. You want them in there in, in, quick and out. So all those things have been a lot of fun, but they all changed. And from <laughs> what I started, I mean, it's an entirely different game. And now all of a sudden, this, this ambush shows up. And it's, it's part of the rules. And now you've got to figure out how to get that ambulance from A to B to C. A to B or C, D, F or whatever it is, out of there and get it out of there fast enough. And, uh, and of course, there's bridges and then all this, things like that. That they, You just had a little Greensmore or Gangsmore going across. Now you're going to have uh, an ambulance with somebody laying in there and everything else going across the bridge. Well, it's a horse of a different color. That ambulance might never get any farther than the, the, the creek, you know, it goes down. But so it all has to be changed. Um, what do you think? Um, I mean, you say a lot of things have changed. Um, do you think that on some level the, um, the golf community is resistant to change? Oh, it's great. Now that's well, that question is the best one you've asked. Uh, there's a lot of people that say that, oh, we have an old Donald Ross course. We want to restore it just the way Donald did it in 1923. Well, see, that's 23, it's 77, and 12 would be 85 years ago, right? Whew, a long time ago. Well, Donald Ross, uh, I met him when I was in, uh, in the service, World War II. I was at Fort Bragg, and that's very close to Piners. And I used to go over and play Piners after the war. And I was there for six months, and I went over there, and I played, and I got to know Mr. Ross. But I got to know some of his, the people that worked on a golf course. Well, then the golf course, uh, uh, the grass, the Bermuda grass at Piners, and, and if it had a, if you had a step meter reading, it'd be maybe five or six. I mean, it was very slow compared to today. So Mr. Ross designed and built everything according to 1923. He didn't build it according to the year 2012. So knowing that he was a pretty good golfer and the way he set his golf courses up, he would never, never, have the greens as contoured like he did back in 23 is today. Because if he did, you couldn't play them. And then they used to have more than in 23, the people that played golf at Piners in 23 were more ardent golfers. Now let me see how to explain that. A guy that plays all the time and 
Uh, he plays two or three times a week. He's been playing for five or ten years. He's an ardent golfer, and he can play. Now, he may be an 85 shooter or a 90 shooter, but he still can negotiate the same drive, the same second shot. Not the, not the same, but similar. He's, he's, he's similar. And, uh, and, and they played more, and they, they became more knowledgeable about the game. So he built a golf course for that caliber person. Then you go up to uh, Culver, Indiana, where I built a little municipal golf course. Guy comes in and is playing for his second time, or third time, or fifth time, or eighth time. No idea about the game of golf. None. Zero. And you got to try to figure out how to get that guy around the golf course. So all these little bunkers that Ross put in in the early part of, the, of his fairways, he would never have done that today because of the change of the game of golf, because of all trying to get the influx of all the new people into the game where you built one golf course and you had four or five hundred golfers come in there, but they all were what I call ardent golfers. Now, not scratch golfers, but golfers that knew the game and played it, and maybe they might be 85 or 92, but they knew what they were trying to do at all times. So it makes a major, major difference. And they knew where, the, uh, where they couldn't hit the ball or could hit the ball. And um, so the little bunkers he had, uh, I'm sure he would eliminate that. And, and I saw a lot of his golf courses that were so entirely different. And he has two great golf courses there in Piners, Pine Needles and, and Mid Pines. And they were never disturbed from the day he built them to the day they are today. Where Piners number two, uh, they, they put uh, common Bermuda grass on the greens. They had sand greens up till 1936 or seven or someplace in that era. And they put common Bermuda grass and common Bermuda to make it smooth. And remember, I just said they used to have a lot of greens down there where they're sand greens. So they would top dress them. So those greens, every time you put a, <coughs> excuse me, an eighth of an inch of sand on it, it'd come up an eighth of an inch. Then put another eighth, another eighth. So eight times they'd do that, they'd come up an inch. So those greens, they grew 18 inches. Piners number two. So they became crowned. And Mr. Ross told me when I was there that he was going to cut those crowns off. Well, he died in 48 and never did. Then Mr. Tufts, who owned the course, said he's going to, Donald's always going to cut the crowns off. I'll cut them off. He never did. So then they came back, and their golf course was sold to Malcolm McLean, who was a farmer and a truck driver and a big guy and made a lot of money. And they kept the greens that way. And then when they rebuilt them, they rebuilt them to that same model. So they really were not what Ross envisioned, but they're, they're hard, they're difficult. And even today, my friend Bill Corr was down there redoing, he left the greens contoured like the top dressing was on top. So that makes it a very difficult thing because still being down like this, they're crowned. And I think when they crowned them and redid them, if, you, if you're crowned and, and you take a little off, you take a quarter of an inch or half an inch, it gets more. But they're going to have the United States Open Championship and the Women's Open Championship together down there at Piners, number two. 
so that the uh, uh, they're going to play on those crown greens. That's all there's to it. There's no white question. But uh, it'll it'll be fun to see and see what happens. But you go over and look at pine needles and mid pines. There are the Ross original greens. He built those when he was there. And and during the war, uh, they didn't have the money, so they didn't top dress them. So they maintained it. And then after the war, they left. They went from common Bermuda grass to a, a hybrid Bermuda. They just took the grass off and put new grass back on. But the contours were more of Mr. Ross's original design than anything. Right there, those two courses. That's so interesting. Um, let's see. How... It, um, How would you, uh, what, what feeling do you think best describes the experience of playing golf? Feeling? Yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think the feeling that a player gets, I mean, it, it, during the round, no matter what caliber, handicap, he's either 20 or 5 or 10 or whatever it is, I think his feelings go up and down through 18 holes. I mean, it can go from one hole to the next and A to B to C to D. Z, A to Z, really. Uh, I think that, uh, and a lot of things will be escalated by just one shot. You know, a golf, a golfer that shoots 90 can take a 7-iron out and hit the worst 7-iron shot you've ever seen. But on the other hand, if he's physically okay, he has the ability, no matter how he swings, to hit the same 7-iron that Ben Hogan does one time. And then, for some reason or another, that goes inside that brain of his that he can do it again. And that's the amazing thing about the game of golf, that you, you play and somehow or another you'll hit a wedge shot or a seven iron shot or a certain shot and you'll be able to execute that as well as anybody's ever done. And, and then, you think, then you think, I can do this again and again and again. It won't happen, but... It, but the thought will never be changed. It's a strange thought process that we have. I like some of the quotes in your in the in your book that you published from other uh, architects, um, and I kind of like the one from Robert Tyre Jones. The more I studied the old course, the more I loved it, and the more I loved it, the more I studied it. Can you talk about that quote a bit? About St. Andrews. Yeah. That was Robert Tyre Jones. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, <coughs> see, I think it was 1962 or three. I can, the year doesn't make any difference. But I flew over to um, uh, to Scotland. They were having the Walker Cup at uh, Turnberry, and I was and uh, I went over with a team. And Alice was coming too, but she didn't want to fly on the same airplane. We had two little kids at that time. So she was coming in later, eight hours later, or six hours later, or whatever it is. So we land at Turnberry. I forget what United or whatever it was, I can't remember. And going through customs, they asked me if I had any uh, cigarettes, and I didn't smoke. I said no. 
And then they said, do I have any silk stockings or this? I said, no. And, when, and they have any jewelry? No. So they opened my suitcase, carton of cigarettes, silk stockings, jewelry, every damn thing else you could think of. So now here I'm with a Walker Cup team, and I'm now being escorted to a room of <laughs> retention. I'm being retained. Well, I kept figuring out. I said, well, I, I didn't know that was in there. This was my wife. So I sat there for six hours. Finally, she lands. I don't wonder why we didn't. I didn't kill her right there on the spot. But she claimed all it was hers. <laughs> so that was a start. And uh, we, we went over and, and they played the Walker Cup at Turnberry. So then they left there and they're gonna have the British Amateur at, uh, at St. Andrews. And I qualified for it. So I could play on the ground with Billy Joe Patton, Dr. Ed Uptergraff, and Downing Gray. And they're all good players and they're all on the Walker Cup team. And I, I went out and I played with them and I had the low round. I had 74 or five or something like that, whatever it was. And they were sitting there after it was all over and they were talking about golf and golf design and all that. How did you get into it, you know? And they finally said, well, what do you really think of St. Andrews? I said, it's the worst golf course I've ever seen. It'll always be the worst golf course I've ever seen. It's the worst I've ever seen. Well, at St. Andrews, it's flat. And when you play the first hole, you don't see the bunkers or the second hole. You don't see half of it. And you got a caddy telling you, go this way or that way or so forth. And that's why normally the first time you play it, you can play it pretty good because the guy's just telling you to shoot out towards the flagpole or the barn or whatever it is on the other side. And you can hit it there. And all of a sudden, you play it four or five times, and the vision of that golf course starts coming into your mind. Now when you're standing on the second hole, he said to go over there, you know there's a pot bunker over about 20 or 30 yards to the right. If you get into that, you can't get out. And all of a sudden, mentally, you can see it. And then after you play it six or seven times, you, you, you can't move because it's all there. And, and, and so I was lucky enough uh, to, to qualify for the British Amateur that year. And I played three or four rounds, and I got, I played a couple practice rounds, and I played three or four more. I got beat by a guy from Glasgow who was a professional roller skater. <laughs> but then I played it five or six times. So I got, I know it a little bit. And then I came back and I qualified again 10 years later in 72 or three, and I couldn't remember it, but I played it two or three times, and the finally, it came back. So where all of a sudden you play St. Andrews the first time, I don't care who you are, if the guy says, oh, I loved it, he's just got to be crazy because he can't possibly remember everything. But after you play it, and, I, and I'm a little slower than the rest of the world, so after I played it four or five times, I could stand on that tee, and all of a sudden the hole came right there. It's right there in front of me. I can't see it. The bunker's here, and the pot bunker's here, and like the tenth hole, you got one here in the middle of the fairway, and you, you finally just, you know it's there. You remember all of that, and you remember all the stuff around the greens you can't see or not see. And that's what made, 
why I'm sure uh, Mr. Jones, Robert Tyre Jones, when he first played it, didn't like it, but after he played it a while, he got to so he played it enough times where he could memorize everything out there, and then it's all the strategy. <clears throat> I don't know exactly how they got the strategy out there, but they did. And the only time anybody's ever gone crazy is when Tiger Woods could finally hit it far enough, he could hit it over everything. And remember, he came backwards to it to when he won the British Average Open. But he could do it. And Jack Nicklaus talked about that, that Tiger could finally get it just far enough to get over the, all that stuff. And but, but what, I could never get over that stuff, I'm sure. And, and when I played it, after uh, 62, I must have played it three or four times in a practice round, and then I won th two or three matches, so I played it about eight times. I could memorize that golf course. And then when I came back in 72 or 3, I had to play it two or three more times before I could remember all, all, all the bunkers and this and that. And when you do that, I, you, 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 you visualize a golf course like I know when we build a golf course, Alice will tell me you've got to be able to see the sand on the, on the sixth hole and so forth. But at St. Andrews, you've got to memorize it because it's, most of it's blind. I haven't played there yet. It's great. <laughs> the whole atmosphere is great there. Wait, uh, I actually want to ask you about that. Um, uh, let's see here. Well, actually, let's see. Uh, I want to make sure, let's see. How do you measure success? I never thought about it. I've been lucky, let's put it that way. I've really been lucky. Uh, I mean, most of my friends that are in the golf course uh, design business or architecture or whatever you want to call it, draw plans, and they have somebody build it. I've always been, I've always loved it, and I've always built everything I've done. And a man upstairs, he throws a curveball at me and a little two inch or four inch rain and the wind or this, but I've always enjoyed building it. So since uh, Dr. Harlan Hasher hired me up at uh, the University of Michigan, I had I, I brought I was brought in and told uh, they're going to have a contractor build it, and uh, Maddox did it, and they uh, Charlie Maddox, and he did a lot of work for Bruce Harris. So. So I tried to make the golf course look a lot like Mr. Jones's golf course. I remember Trent would see me every once in a while and say, Pete, you've done some pretty good work, but your course up at the University of Michigan is your best because a lot of it, big long tees, high bunkers were like Mr. Jones. I built it like Mr. Jones. But then after, after I came back, I, uh, I would, took Alice's money and I bought a tractor and a bulldozer and I went down to the backfield and learned how to run it. And, and, and ever since then, I've always enjoyed building the golf course. Now, I don't run the bulldozer every day, and I don't do this every day, but I can. And I take a group of kids, usually out of turf school, and get them in there, <clears throat> and locals and, and everything else, and I build it with local people. Like at Kiowa, I mean, I built that whole thing. 
<coughs> with local people up there. And I did a, a TPC in Jacksonville, same thing. But uh, everything I've, most of the golf courses that have any notoriety, I've built all, everything of Mr. Kohler. I'm still building up there. He hadn't shot me yet, but he's thinking about it. <laughs> but uh, I think that, you know, after you build a golf course, and that's, it's hard for somebody to realize that when you build it, they think, well, you should have everything right. Well, you never get everything right because you got 150 or 200 acres of ground out there and a the man upstairs pushing it this way and pushing it that way. You got no grass on it. You're trying to seed it. You're begging you're going to stop the erosion. You're going to stop it from flooding down there. The greens are going to, in, in, in a day, you put a green in just like this rug and you got a transit and a level and a, Instead of working like I did 20 or 30 years ago, just kind of eyeballing it all in, you tr you're making sure that this green is only running uh, an inch and a half every 10 feet. So when you cut it at 10 or 11, the ball will run off the green. Well, it, it just takes a little bit of wind, a little bit to blow the sand a quarter of an inch off or a half an inch off or, or, the, or have a get a rain that move it the side of the hill. This. So it, it's, it's difficult. Uh, to get what you really, really, really want, and even though you're standing there 24 hours of, uh, during the day to get it there, it's really hard to get it there. And then, and then after, after you watch, get the grass on it, and you watch people start playing, you the golf course, like at the one at the ocean course at Kiowa, I say it walks and swims, and the wind blows and it moves and and and, 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 the, and the sea and so you got to go back and keep constantly working on it. And because of the maintenance end of it, like I told you originally, I enjoy that, and people finally understand it where I'm working. So I get to go back, and, and I push it here, a little air, and push it here. It's not a lot, but you can watch the pros play. And just like uh, this year at the Tournament Players Club in Jacksonville, I was up there five years ago, and... They they build up organic in the in the in the fairways, it's five, four or five inches, maybe six, and the greens had so much, and I explained that to Mr. Fincham, and so finally, <clears throat> I went out there and on the first part of the seventh hole, right after the uh, tournament, we took the sod off, and it took a bulldozer and pushed the organic off put sand back, and the ball then started bouncing, moving. So then he came back, and the next year he said, well, all right, you can do the whole course. So I had to do the bulkheading and, and the greens and the fairways and the irrigation. We did the whole works. We closed it down and rebuilt the whole golf course five years ago. So I came back last May, and I was there a year before, and I said, you guys are starting to lose, lose it again. Oh, no, no, I was starting. Well, I came back in May. And uh, I was there on, on Sunday, and Monday I went to walk the golf course, and the players had started to show up. And I didn't have a transit or a laser. And it used to be able to eyeball it in, but nowadays, this inch and a quarter, every 10 feet, you, you can't see it. You've got you to stand there with a laser. And so I, 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 I looked to me like they were losing it. So I went over to the Mr. Fincham's office about... 2.30, 3 o'clock, and the girl there, I know her, and she said, well, Mr. Fincham can't see you. He's got 
CBS or ABC or somebody back there. And they're all tied up in their own meetings and sponsored. And so I said, I'll wait. She said, well, he'll never see him. I said, I'll wait. So at 5, 30, 6 o'clock, he stuck his head out the door and said, what's wrong? I came in there and I said, well, Mr. Fincham, I said, I've never seen the golf course in better shape grass-wise. It's the greens are immaculate. Everything's perfect. He says, I know, they're perfect. I went out there the other day and looked, they're perfect. I said, well, Mr. Fincham, I think you've lost the contours on some of your greens. Oh, no, that's impossible. You're paranoid. <laughs> I said, I might be. I So I said, but we'll wait and see. And I, went, I finally stayed there for one day, watched the tournament, then went home. And then on Monday morning, 10 o'clock, I was sitting there, back right back, and the phone rings. I picked up, hello? Yes, sir, Mr. Fincham. I held the phone right out there. And I went back up and rebuilt six greens. Because when they go at 12 or 13, you lose an inch or two. It's just out the window. And the ball would come down off the hills instead of stopping before it went into the water where the bulkhead was. They'd gone from an inch and a quarter, an inch and a half, to two and a half to three inches. Just goes off. So I just fixed six of them. So the, uh, he knows, he knew when I went back up there, I said, that's what's happened. And they did it. How you lose that, now you probably don't understand this, but by just top dressing, the way you top dress. So you keep putting sand in there and working it down there, and, 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 and you put so much sand, in three or four years' time, you can change an inch, inch to three inches real quick, just like that, and get more in one place than another place, then out she goes. That's what happened. So now we're back in staff. We're back on track again. <laughs> but that's that's what I enjoy doing as much as anything. And that's, I don't know, what do you call that? I, I enjoy that. But what, what we went in to do, the greens, the six greens I had to do, you, you don't take the whole green, but you take a third of it, cut the sod off, and go take the sub-base and work it out and, and bring it back to where it was and change the bulkheading a little bit here. Maybe I raise the bulkheading inch and a half or two inches or inches or quarter, whatever it was, so that when the ball came off the contour, it finally got down there. Instead of going in three inches every 10 feet, going an inch and a half to an inch and a quarter. So I left everything an inch and a quarter because I knew when they top dress, they, they for some reason, they get next to the bulkhead and they pull it back and it always, they, they can, take a quarter of an inch out of there just like that. And you don't think much about it, about a quarter of an inch. And a quarter of an inch 20 years ago would make no difference when the speed was seven or eight. But now at 12, it does. And you just you just can't have that. Especially when those pros are coming, they're gonna have, <laughs> have them ready to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, is there any such thing as a, um is there any such thing as a fair game? A golf? Oh golf, no. Golf or life? Oh no, 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 not in golf. Surely in golf, you play in <clears throat> seventy-two old golf tournaments. Play play four days, and the guy in the morning tees off in the best weather in the world. And the guy in the afternoon is in, in a hailstorm. You know, and the next day he's in a hailstorm, and the other guy in the best weather. You know, the wind's real high, and it all changes. 
So golf has never been meant to be a fair game. I mean, I mean, it's 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 amazing uh, uh, where they're playing out in Hawaii. They you, you, right now they the morning the guys are one way and the afternoon guys are another. So it's always changed. Golf is always, and then the guy hits a perfect drive right in the middle of the fairway and ends up the guy's divot. The guy just didn't replace his divot. He hadn't been gone 15 minutes. So there's nothing fair about golf. And in the world, life, life is fair. Just, we just don't understand it. <laughs> what do you mean? Can you explain that more? Well, you, 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 you can't believe that, that some real young person driving down the highway goes off and is killed. You can't understand it. Don't know why. But it happens. And you pick up the newspaper, it happens every day in the life. All these crazy things. Somebody gets shot and somebody does this. And somebody gets raped and somebody does this. You think it's all unfair. but It's part of the game. And uh, <clears throat> then the next person goes through life and lives to be 105 and has no problems, real problems. You never know why. You never know why somebody 25 goes out the window for no reason at all and uh, for un 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 unknown reason, just something happens that shouldn't happen. So it's hard to figure out what's fair and not fair. And uh, uh, so the uh, uh, the world is just okay. It seems to be rolling along. Right now, there, there's a lot of people doing okay. Just a few get in trouble. <laughs> but that's part of the game. But golf is meant to be unfair. And that's part of it. That's the fun of it. And man, and, and man and, because of the world we live in, is used to that becoming unfair. I mean, you see a lot of golfers are, can survive that hailstorm in the morning and know his competitors are playing in the sunshine in the afternoon. He, there's certain ones that can, that can survive a lot easier than others, but that doesn't make, make the game wrong. It's just the way it is. I mean, that happens every day in, in a golf tournament. I mean, there's very few golf tournaments that you see the grass or the, the, the speed of the greens being the same in the morning as the afternoon or, or the morning, the afternoon, the next morning, or the, the weather in the morning the same as the afternoon. It's, that doesn't happen too often. So uh, they're used to it. They're, they don't say it's unfair. That's just part of the game. What kind of golfer does say it's unfair? The guy that usually quits. <laughs> how, how do we I mean what, what's the best thing golf has taught you well I think I think the, the best uh, golf you know when you, I've always said that there's so many good people in golf you find good people in golf in all phases from the caddies right on the people working in the pro shops and, and the people playing people you play with I, I think it, it, it I, I think when you say what is taught, you you are just you try to be part of that same atmosphere, and uh, and so uh, I think that's you just uh, maybe it teaches you that, but you you're just brought up that way, thinking that way. I remember the first time I threw a golf club, I was playing in a pro am, and I was probably thirteen or fourteen, 
in, or maybe 15, I don't remember when, but I was in Piqua, Ohio, which is not too far from Urbana. I was playing a pro-am, and uh, I had a caddy, and I told a caddy to climb up there and get my putter. And I heard a voice in the background say, you threw it up there, you, if you want that putter, you better go get it yourself. Well, <laughs> I recognized the voice. <laughs> and so at that time, they had a bug chasing the, the trees. I think it was an elm tree. And they put a sticker around it. So he had to crawl over that sticker. So I crawled up and got that putter. And the next day when I got home, I was looking for my golf clubs. I couldn't find them. And uh, I finally asked my mother where they are. And she said, I think your father took them. And I went down to his little office. He had an insurance office. And they were sitting there. I said, can I have my clubs? He says, I think I paid for them. I think they're mine. I didn't forget that for a long time, see. <laughs> I finally bought them back. But he says, you don't throw my clubs. That's all I said. And I haven't thrown one since. But I think that's part of golf, and, and a lot of people that way in golf. I don't think I've thrown anyone since then, to my knowledge. <laughs> but I have, it hadn't been very far. It hadn't been up a tree, that's for sure. But, uh, but you kind of have to go through that, right? I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. But that's you, part of the game. That's part of it. You say in your book that you were you were kind <coughs> of a, you say you were kind of a scoundrel as a child. Yeah. Well, you know, what's that like? You know, I mean, growing up and then you kind of have to do those things. Sure. I, I can remember him saying, "I believe they're mine. I paid for them." He was right. No question about it. <laughs> Do you wish, what's the difference between a public course and a private course? And well, do, And do you wish more people could play some of your some of your nicer courses? Oh, yes. You always, you know, the thing is, like, um, uh, take the, the private course down at Kiowa. It, uh, it's expensive, but, the, it, but it's open to the public. And um, I have built probably as many, Resort-type golf courses, PGA in, in Jacksonville is a resort course, and the Marriott's there, and 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 Harbortown is a resort golf course it out there, and and uh, the the course at French Lick is is strictly a resort golf course, and they're expensive, but you know, a guy working at this filling station or the sawmill or the Ironworks or working at the drugstore or something, can, he can save up enough money to go play those golf courses. Now he doesn't play it every day, but but neither does anybody else. But he can. It's it's. It, and I've always felt that I wanted to build a golf course where the general public can play. Now that doesn't say that they're going to play it every day of their lives, but that's but the so sawgrass. I have. Like I in Indianapolis, I always hear about eight eight people in the medical profession or CPAs. They go down there and play it once. 
they pay $250 or whatever it is. But they all come back talking about playing the Term Players Club in Jacksonville. But they can play it. And uh, I have built, tried to stay in building uh, those types. Now, I raised the money and built the course for the University of uh, Purdue. And they had the National Intercollegiate that played up there in the Big Ten. It's open to the public. And I've built the one down for the uh, University of Virginia Tech. And they're going to have the uh, the uh, intercollegiate next year or the next year. I go back, and, and I built the one for the University of, of um, Arizona State. And one in Michigan has been a real success. I went up there that even the first one I built. But the, yeah, and I built uh, a private club, a public course in, outside of Hartford for a dollar. And it's doing okay. And, uh, and uh, so I, I see... I've built, oh, the one I built in Indianapolis has the biggest number of rounds of golf, Northeast Way, one of the second or third or fourth, fifth golf courses I ever built. And I built that, and they didn't have a bunker. <laughs> the guys, the, 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 the board didn't want me to put any bunkers in out there. Well, I've gone back and bunkered the thing up, and it's still playing more golf than any course in the city of Indianapolis. But, uh, and then, Crooked Stick is a very private club, but that's when Alice and I started. But it, it's it's had numerous golf tournaments. I mean, it's had everything up there. That the PGA Championship, they've had the Solheim Cup, and they've had the USGA Senior, and they've had the US Am Mid Amateur, and they've had the Junior Amateur, and the the Women's Amateur, Women's Open, US Women's Open. They've had everything but the US Open up there. But and they're going to have the uh, um, FedEx Cup there this year. So really, even though it's a private club, it was, it was built with the idea of exposure to the game. Now, not everybody gets to play there, but a lot of people do play there. But, but Northeast Way, they're playing 40, 50,000 rounds of golf up there in Indianapolis right now. And... Uh, University of Michigan golf course plays unbelievable rounds. And the one at um, Virginia Tech and Brown and Blacksburg, they play a lot of golf. And they're playing a lot of golf at Purdue. And I'm trying to get, I built 18 holes at Purdue and they had the National Intercollegiate and they had the Big Ten. And they had the, the, uh, the Intercollegiate that's just part of it. They've had two, but they had the main one there. But they're coming, and they're talking about coming back. But there's another 18 holes there. I'm trying to get all fixed up, so they have 36 holes at Purdue, and they're only a, <clears throat> an hour and 15 minutes from uh, Chicago. So try to get groups to come down from Chicago, and see the main thing about Purdue, uh, that place. They, uh, it's open to the public, but they have all the students and all the faculty and everybody there. But they leave the first of June come back 1st of September. So June, July, and August, there's play there, but not the volume. So they can take outside play. So if I get 36 holes in good shape, the clubhouse fixed up, uh, they would have a, a lot of play come out of Chicago. So I've worked on as many daily fee golf courses as anybody in the business, I bet. Percentage-wise, I have. But... Uh, you 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 got you have to have good 
municipal golf courses, and they and and they got to be built where they don't have a debt. Somehow or another, I don't know how. Somehow or another, Purdue the the North Nine, eighteen up there. I raised the money, so it's no debt. But if you get a get a city or a municipality, get it in there some way or another. The land's free, or the golf course is pretty good. Now, my son, Peavy, built one down in in, um, in Kentucky. It um, now let's see what's the name of the town. I think of it, but it's doing well too. But you can't you cannot build enough daily fee golf courses in this country. And the the there's a difference between a daily fee that's owned, where a guy bought the land, paid for it. It's got a big debt. It's against the city that owns the land. Somehow it got the thing to bond together, or so it's built without much ex capital expense where they have to worry about paying off. That's okay. How are you doing? Good. Pretty good? Yeah. Can I ask you two more questions? Sure. I feel I've, this has taken, we've been here for an hour and a half. Okay. Do you have to go? No, I'm okay. Okay. Got a brand new camera and you use all these old lenses. How's it do it dark? It does pretty good actually. That's that's why I use these lenses because they uh, they're much brighter. The old Nikon lenses and they're just higher quality from the newer stuff. Okay, so yeah, just just two questions about uh, Dean Beeman and TPC. You know, can you just give me an overview, like real briefly, of you know what he asked you to do and how the stadium idea, you know, was not totally revolutionary but somewhat revolutionary, and how it spawned this whole network that you were involved in? Sure. Well, Dean was was great when he asked me to come up there and possibly find land in Jacksonville to help him find land and look at it and the possibility of designing and building the golf course. And he knew how I worked. I mean, I went to Harbortown, I built it and so forth. But then we walked around and, and there was some different land that looked pretty good, but it was expensive in this. And finally, uh, the land that <clears throat> we have today, he, Dean got for a dollar. <laughs> and then I was out there trying to drain it. And uh, so we had a, a local contractor to come in there, and he's having just nothing but trouble draining it. So I finally got one of my boys that named Dave Postalway been working with me, and we uh, rented the equipment and got in there and got going. And David was the one. I mean, I was all I think all I did was worry about it. I was up there screaming and yelling and whatever it did, but but. Uh, David one really got the thing drained. Somehow or another, we got the canals put in and <clears throat> got the thing drained out to the big canal, which was west of us there. And so, and then, actually, I made a little map for Dean showing what what, what we're trying to do and where this where the mounds would go and so forth. And a lot of that was organic out there, so those mounds were all just built, all bad stuff material. But uh, uh, Dean let me run pretty much on my own out there. <clears throat> and then 
he had one idea that he wanted the Greens to, where he had the pin in 19, whatever the year we built the thing, 70 or 80 or whatever it was, that the, the, he had a cup here and a cup here and a cup here and a cup here, so they would stay the same. Well, that didn't work out too good, but we put it out there the first year, and uh, Jerry Pate had a good round, and he played quite well. Sorry, so, um, you know, actually, what I'd be interested to hear is um, you, there were goats. Can you tell me that story? Oh, yeah, sure, I know that. So, but anyhow, Jerry Pate won the first tournament, and everything was, was there's some yelling about the golf course, this and that, but it got by pretty good. And, and really, during the building the golf course, there was a lot of rough area out there, and we didn't raise the fairways. The fairways are... Natural. There's pretty natural, and the greens are very low. Just the mounds are up, but I brought in all these goats to clean out the rough, and they did a wonderful job. They did it fine, and finally we got the golf course open, and it still had the goats there, and one was called Prunes, and uh, old Prunes was doing all right, but they finally went around and nosed a few of the ladies in the rear, in the back end a little bit. Didn't do too good, and didn't like that, and actually. The, the roof of the original clubhouse came down and somehow prunes could get on the edge of that roof and climb clear up the top. So after we had them out there for a while, and even though they were doing a good job of maintaining the, the rough area and keeping it cut down, but their but interference with some of the players and climbing that roof, that was just too much for Dean, and we had to get rid of the goats. But, but they were there for some time. But I remember... They did a wonderful job of cleaning up that rough, and I've always thought if I could just get people to put a fence around, I wouldn't have to pay so much money cleaning up the rough area. They, they did a wonderful job. <laughs> that, that's uh, something that Mackenzie was very fond of, right? Yeah. Well, there's a, in, in, you go over to Scotland and Ireland, they always, they're still over there, over there in the, the rough, and, they, and, and at Lee Hinch, they have them. And then when I built the whistling straights for Mr. Kohler, we have we have fifty four black faced sheep over there on that same as they do in Scotland, Ireland. And he wants them out there on the golf course. And the only thing Mr. Kohler has that we have trouble, everybody wants their picture taken when it slows down play. So we kinda hide them during the lot of heavy play, but they're out there quite a bit. Can you tell uh, it's my understanding that a bunker comes from where does the bunker come from? Well, you know, the, the original uh, bunkers that I saw that in the pictures years and years ago that were in, from Scotland, the, uh, the, uh, the sand would erode. And a lot of places where the road and a lot of places where the sheep were, they, they made a bunker. And then the, the, the golf courses were built out the country along the edge of a railroad. And, and that's how people got out to the golf course on the railroad. And uh, they, they'd tear up the old railroad, and there'd be a bunch of old railroad ties. So the Scots, being very prudent, they would take those railroad ties and lean them up against the banks of those bunkers so they wouldn't erode, it wouldn't fall down. And that's where I first saw a lot of, there's a lot of old courses in Scotland that have uh, railroad ties around their bunkers, even today. Prestwick had a bunch of them. 
and uh, a lot of a lot of them do. And that was done was done when the uh, the, uh, the sand. Got to remember that was all sand over there, and it, it would blow due to the wind. Uh, but they put those ties in there to hold those banks. And uh, so when I brought them back to the United States, everybody thought it was crazy. But uh, I put in a, quite a few for a while, and then I quit. But then a lot of other people put in railroad ties, and every time they see one, they can blame it on me. Uh, I haven't put one in for a long time, but but the uh, but that's why they were put in over there. And those bunkers over there were done a lot by the the animals. The sheep would burrow into them, and and that would be a bunker. And when they came back in the spring and played, sometimes they would erode, and but next time they would put railroad ties around them to keep them from going away. Do you really want to be buried in a pot bunker? Might as well. It would be as good a place as I, any place I can think of. <laughs> you do that, would be okay. Thank you. I think, I don't know what else to ask. Okay. We're in business. We're in business. Thank you so much. You're great to come by. I hope you have a good time with Dean.